there is an invitation this morning for us to come to the altar as we are. Knowing that he is a wonderful savior. Lord, I thank you for your presence today. I thank you, God, that in the midst of the challenges that we are facing, God, that you can be our refuge, you can be our hiding place. Lord, when when we are feeling vulnerable and and just uncertain, God, about what lies ahead, God, we thank you that you offer to lead us. We thank you that you offer to help us in our distress, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you would do a work in our hearts, Lord, that you would help lift some burden of just our falseness, God. Sometimes our pretending, sometimes our desire to look a certain way, to look strong, to look impressive, God. But Lord, gently today as we come to your word, would you lift that from us? Would you lift that burden? So, God, we can feel relief, your relief, your peace. Help us to understand your word today, Holy Spirit. We know that you are doing a healing work, and I ask that you would do only what you can do, that you would fill our hearts with your grace for anyone here who has never encountered your love in a way that is personal, in a way that they know it is you who is calling to them personally God Lord I ask that as we come to your word and as we continue to worship together that you would encounter these people Lord that you would reveal your love to them that you would come and heal their hearts Lord come and give them rest for their uh, rest in their souls Lord Holy Spirit, help us to be open to your work today. Help us to be willing to listen. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. As a church we say amen. Amen. Good morning, guys. I'm just on barely about to hit the afternoon, but good morning to you all. And good morning to everyone who's tuning in at home, or maybe you're tuning in from... Wherever I know it's the long weekend, uh, and for many of you, it's our preference to take the Monday off. It already feels like it's a holiday, even as I look, I look here, but I'm glad for those of you who could join us at church today. I'm glad to have you here to worship with us, and those of you who are online, we're glad that you can tune in and fellowship with us as well. Today, as we talk about holidays... Something that is always exciting to me at the end of the year is Christmas. 
I'm obsessed with Christmas, as uh, many of you would learn or have come to know. And as a church, we celebrate Christmas in November because we know that many of you are going to take leave and holidays, and as many of you have already started doing. Um, so just a quick announcement that we have a special Christmas service on the 20th of November. Um, there will be no morning service, so it'll be 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. Um, and we will have uh, souvlaki served for the both services. So that's something that uh, we look forward to celebrating with you before most of you head off on holidays. And we would probably then be going back to one service in December. But that's an announcement that we will make shortly. Um, but for now, we are heading back into our study of the book of Samuel. We, if you've been following us the past couple of weeks, we took a series break. We were talking about generosity as we prepared our hearts to, um, for the Christmas period uh, to be generous because we know that in Jesus coming and being born uh, into this world, He was ultimately uh, showing us the greatest act of generosity and that is giving us Himself. And so we've been talking about generosity over the past couple of weeks, but we are now back into our study of the book of Samuel. Now, if you don't remember where we're up to, that's okay. I've got a quick recap prepared for you. But if you are turning to your Bibles or um, if you would like to follow along in your personal reading, um, we are in the chapter 16 today. So here is the recap so far of the study of Samuel. What we know is Samuel is a judge and he judged the nation of Israel faithfully um, and led them in the ways of God for his lifetime. But when it came for him to retire, uh, the Israelites took that opportunity to demand for a change in government. They asked for a king to rule over them because they wanted, they said, to be like all the other nations. So what made Israel unique up until this point is that it didn't have a human king sitting on a throne. God was ultimately their king. And God had ruled the Israelites through judges and leaders whom He would raise at certain times to deliver the nation and to perform certain tasks of leadership. But at Samuel's, at the point of Samuel's retirement, Israel rejected God as their king. And in doing that, they rejected their calling to be a light to the nations around them. Instead of living by faith and trusting God to rule over them, they wanted a human king like all the other nations. Now what we learn is that God is not pleased by this demand, and, but He decides to give them what they asked for. But first, He warns them that the king that they've asked for, that the king that they want will eventually oppress them. And the king that they got is Saul. When Saul is 
first introduced into this narrative, he is described as the most handsome man in Israel, if there ever was such a man. Head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land, the Bible says. But over the course of chapters 13 to 15, we learn that Saul, even early on in his kingship, he fails badly as Israel's king. And then we get this really raw moment where God is being honest. Uh, He's always honest, by the way, but I feel like this is a special vulnerable, honest moment where he shares his heart to Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10, so um, God said this to Samuel. He says, I'm sorry um, that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. You see, God was expressing heart, uh, this regret to Samuel, that he had ever made Saul king. Now, I'm sure a lot of you, uh, I I could sort of think of some of you already, might be asking, well, okay, if God regretted making Saul king, does this mean that God changed his mind? Because after all, it was God who led Samuel to Saul in the first place. Does that mean that God... um, regretted his decision because he was changing his mind about it all. But you see, that's not the way we will interpret to interpret the scripture. Because God is not human, it says in Numbers chapter 23. God does not change his mind. God is holy. And that means he doesn't change. That means he is perfect already. God is consistent and he is faithful. So it wasn't God who changed, it was Saul who changed. What we see is at the beginning when God appointed Saul to be king, Saul didn't think much of himself. He didn't think that he was uh, a potential king in the first place. And it was all a surprise to him that he had been chosen. But you see, now as we progress through the narrative, Saul is full of himself. As God is expressing regret of making Saul king, you know what Saul is doing? He's setting up a monument of himself in honour of himself and the victories that he thinks he accomplished on his own. In verse 12, following on from before, it says, early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Samuel went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went to Gilgal. This was the king that Israel had asked for. And despite the fact that God did not agree He gave them their request. But you see what happens. Saul turns his back on God. And 
he starts to become full of himself. And what we know is men in power who are full of, him, of themselves become dangerous. And so Saul thinks he's now better than God. And God then rejects him as king. But you see, this does not mean that God rejected Israel as his people. And it does not mean that God rejected his good plans for Israel. You see, God had promised to bring blessing to the whole world through this small nation of Israel. And God was not ready to back out on his word. He was going to remain faithful. And so what does he do? We see now, as we land on chapter 16, the story takes a different turn. And God is telling Samuel to go look for the next king. Now, this would be the king that he chooses for Israel. And so if you're reading with me, open 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 to 13. Or you can read along. In the NLT version, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be the king. But Saul asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Here's the strategy to make sure nobody finds out that you're going to appoint the next king. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? They asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of, the, of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one that the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, neither is this one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? As, as if, as, you have only seven sons? <laughs> there is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. 
He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So David stood there among his brothers. Samuel took the flask of olive oil and brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. You know, what's striking as we read these verses is when Samuel sees Eliab, Jesse's eldest son, and the one described to be the tallest and a good-looking man. He's impressed, and he thinks this must be God's choice. But God then tells Samuel, hey, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed just by the way somebody looks and by their stature. You see, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. You see, God does not look at the things that people look at. He does not operate by human reasoning. What seemed kingly material to Samuel was not kingly material to God because God's point of view was different to Samuel's point of view. People look at outward appearance. We tend to choose what is impressive, don't we? What is pleasing to the eye. We tend to choose shiny things. We tend to choose things that are powerful. It's part of our human nature. The other day, Edwin and I took Levi and Faith to Big W. It's become one of our favorite places as a family because it's so nearby and has everything. Levi, this time, wanted to buy a toy with some of the money that he had collected over the years, with some of the ang pao, all right, that he had collected over all the... Chinese New Year's and Christmas holidays. So we finally let him use his money because he just wanted to buy a small toy for himself. And we suggest that maybe he can also buy Faith something too, just as a gesture of um, love to her. And he agrees. He tells Faith, okay, Faithy, you can go find something, but with a budget of course. <laughs> and he gives a budget to Faith. Now, Faith being small and obviously only being able to see probably two shelves of every aisle, runs up and down the aisle scanning the shelves. And, and then suddenly we see her stop at this. Your cocoa melon box. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it is. Where is it, Faithy? <laughs> she stops at this. Now, any of you who are toddler parents will know what this is, Cocoa Melon. Cocoa Melon, for any of you who don't know, um, is, one, is the second most, most watched YouTube channel in history. Okay? By now, I think any toddler parents probably hate this channel. Um, uh, it's really, you know... When, when kids watch it, there's, there's this hypnotic effect to it. They, they, they just, they're just glued to the screen, including faith. And so it's actually not something we 
watch we let her watch anytime it's something that we watch we let her watch when it's urgent like when we need faithy to really sit down <laughs> and be quiet we pull out coco melon okay so that's how powerful it is so faithy after running around not knowing what she wants suddenly looks at this coco melon box and she's like i want this but the thing is inside this box is one flimsy puzzle and it costs three dollars now I have, Levi was a lot more generous than that. Levi had given her a slightly bigger budget. And me as a mom, I was like, Faithy, you sure you want just a puzzle? And I was trying to make her look at other toys that were around the same budget area. I was like, what about this toy? Maybe this is something that you can play a little bit more um, after just, uh, you know, rather than just having do one puzzle. Or maybe, maybe this one, um, this is something that you can love and... No, I want this one. <laughs> and she was set on this melon box. <laughs> this is simply just to illustrate that sometimes it really is in our nature when we're making decisions to just look for things that we are attracted to, things that are pleasing because we judge things by our outward appearance. And often we know we should probably make decisions with more information, but it really gets us anxious because sometimes it's hard to discern any more information than what we can see. You know, if we look back to the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, it says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree and it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It's interesting, isn't it, that she could see a fruit so attractive and pleasing to the eye and think to herself, that is what I need. That's what's going to give me wisdom. And since that point on in human history... Human, human beings have walked by sight and no longer by faith. Samuel thought that God would choose Eliab as Israel's next king because of the way he looked. But God is not deceived by how a person looks on the outside. You see, God is not impressed, often impressed by the things that we are impressed by. Unlike human beings, God's point of view is not limited to just sight. He sees beyond what the human eye cannot see. He sees into a person's heart. Another thing that really struck me as I was studying this chapter is that even after decades, like after a long successful history of godly leadership and prophetic ministry, Samuel still needed to depend on God for instruction. If Samuel had leaned on his own understanding, he would have chosen the wrong guy to be the next king. He would have anointed the wrong guy. In this situation... Samuel still had to rely on God's point of view. 
He needed to walk by faith and not by sight. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't depend on your wisdom and your smarts and your knowledge. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You see, regardless of how long pastors and church leaders have been in ministry, they must still continue to not lean on their understanding, but depend on God's instruction and wisdom. We never graduate from needing to do that. And this does not just apply to church leaders. Because the idea that vocational ministry, the idea that full-time ministry or being a pastor is more sacred or more spiritual than any other job is simply not true. It's simply not biblical to think that way. All your work, if you are a child of God, all your work is sacred if your motivation is to honour God. So the biblical way of seeing your workplace is to see it as a mission field in which God has positioned you to be Christ's ambassador and witness. Before you need to preach to anyone, why don't you look at your colleagues and start praying for them? Praying for them. Because think about it, God has strategically positioned you. Didn't you pray when you got this job? Didn't you pray beforehand? So when you got this job, don't you believe that God has positioned you there for a purpose? Pray for your colleagues. And the biblical way to see them is to see them as your neighbour, whom God has called you to love as He loves you. And so if God has entrusted you with any form of leadership, be faithful by depending on Him in your decision-making. Leaders need to be prayerful if you want to make good decisions because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember that even Samuel couldn't discern God's will immediately after serving Him for all those years. He still needed to depend on God's eyes. And behind Samuel's success as Israel's leader was years and years and years of faithful obedience to the Lord. And so as I was really studying this chapter, it really resonated with me that the greater the leadership responsibility, the greater the need to obey God. The greater the need to depend on God. And if any of you are praying for your leaders, whether it be church leaders or leaders in the workplace or at home, pray that either they would know God or pray that they would depend on God. As we go back to the story of Samuel selecting the son, uh, one of Jesse's sons to be the next king, we know that Eliab was this tall, handsome man, yet he was not the one that God had chosen. You see, the last tall, good-looking young man that we heard in this story was Saul. 
Now, I have to say that, especially for those of you who are tall and think yourself good looking, the Lord is not trying to say like that good looking, tall young men cannot be good kings, okay? That's not how we are to interpret this scripture. But there is a reason why the description of the height of these men is included because it's supposed to symbolize something else. If we look back to the way the book of Samuel begins, it starts with a story of a woman named Hannah. Now we know that Hannah is Samuel's mom. But when we are first introduced to Hannah, we find out that she is a woman who cannot bear a child. And so in her brokenness, she prays to the Lord earnestly. And God opens her womb. God gives her a child. And that child is Samuel. In chapter 2, Hannah then recites a prayer of praise. She praises the Lord for what he has done in her life. And if we look at that, if we look at this prayer of praise, we will see certain sentences pop up. In verse 2, it says, Do not keep talking so proudly. In verse 7, it says, The Lord, he humbles and he exalts. And then in verse 9, it says, It is not by strength that one prevails. You see, this song is setting the agenda for the rest of the book of Samuel. It's setting the theme that God lifts up the lowly and God humbles those who are proud. If we look at those in verse, in the, the word in verse 2, it says proudly. Now that's actually the same word in the original text for height. So another way you could say that line is, don't keep talking so highly of yourself. And so the detail of Eliab's height and Saul's height is mentioned to symbolize the truth that God brings low those who are high, those who are proud. And that he, and what we will see in him choosing David, is that God raises up those who are low, those who are humble. You see, none of the seven sons Jesse initially presented to Samuel was the one that God had chosen to be the next king. When Samuel asked Jesse, is this all you have? It's as if Jesse's like, oh yes, I do have one more. He's so young and he's but he's also out there tending the sheep and the goats. Jesse didn't even think to include David in the initial lineup. In Jesse's eyes, David was merely a a small shepherd boy, barely kingly material. Sure, he was handsome, but he was not described as someone you would choose or expect to be the next king. And tending sheep was in fact the least demanding of all jobs in the farm. The equivalent of that in today's economy would be something like babysitting for a neighbour or bagging groceries at the supermarket. 
They're still important. It's important work. But it's least demanding than probably other forms of work that require uh, more responsibility. And so it's reasonable, therefore, to think that this teenage shepherd cannot be the next king. But God was, but David was the one that God had chosen. David was chosen and anointed by God, not for what anybody saw in him. Nobody saw kingly potential in David, not his father, not his brothers, not even Samuel. But he was chosen because of what God saw in him. Weak, low, despised, unlikely. These seem to be the essential qualities that God looks for in His servants throughout history. If we trace through the narrative of the Bible, we see that the heroes are not very impressive at all. And God seems to be very intentional at choosing these people. If any of you know my know my professional background, I used to work in human resources before I worked at the church. And one of the things that we would do is write job descriptions or job ads if, if the company wanted to recruit. And I would imagine God recruiting his, his people, like his heroes in history, that he would, how he would be writing these job ads. Imagine Israel's next king. And the job ad would say something like, seeking a teenage shepherd. Proficiency in music and poetry. Because we know David was a musician and he was a poet. Will be living through constant threat of assassination in early years of role. Like imagine this, God knowing he would recruit David. Like imagine if he wrote a job ad, it would look something like this. And yet David goes on to become the most, the greatest Old Testament king in Israel. Now imagine with me the job ad for the Messiah, Jesus. Seeking a highly experienced carpenter. Because that's what Jesus did for most of his life before he started his ministry. Must come from an insignificant, despised town. And must have no formal theological education. Barely the qualifications you would expect for Israel's, ne- for Israel's Messiah. And yet Jesus comes in such conditions. One final one I have. Lead apostle. Must have proven experience in the fishing industry. Formal theological education not required. And even if you were to think the Apostle Paul, what he becomes, the greatest, one of the greatest missionaries and evangelists, think about the criminal record. It's not just shoplifting. The criminal record that Paul had was killing the Christians that he was going to evangelize to. And yet God could use 
anybody. God can recruit anyone in his kingdom for his purposes. God never calls us to any kingdom work that we are capable of doing by ourselves on our own. He wants us to know that he will anoint us for the work that he's called us to. People judge by outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he is looking for humility. Sometimes we work so hard to impress other people, don't we? We, we work so hard to try and cover up what's really going on on the inside. Cover up our true self. But the more we try to put on a show, isn't it true? The more we become restless and unhappy. The more we become depressed. But God gives grace to the humble. Meaning he will give grace to those who admit that they are weak. He will give grace to those who cry out to him for help. He will give give grace to those who know that they cannot keep clean on their own, but who bring their mess to God. God will give the grace and guidance to those who humbly trust Him with all their height. Do you need guidance? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You see, we must be careful not to rely on our human point of view. I love this quote by Timothy Keller. He says, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what He gives. In other words, if we could see everything that God sees, if we could know everything that God knows, the things that we would be praying about today are exactly what He would be giving to us. But the truth is, they're not, are they? Because we don't know everything that God knows. We cannot see everything that God sees. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And so we can only see properly as we learn God's point of view. Saul may have been the king that Israel wanted and requested. But this young Shepherd boy who was overlooked was the kind of king that Israel needed. As Samuel anointed David, God empowered him for the task ahead. He put his spirit upon David. And then in verse, and then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I took you from tending the sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. Why is it that God was seeking a shepherd to be the next king? What made shepherding a qualification for a godly king? In his commentary, Tim Chester puts it this way, and I just quoted from him because he puts it so well. When David became king, His job description did not change. What changed was his flock. He went from shepherding Jesse's flock of sheep to shepherding God's flock of people. 
Jesse didn't think that a shepherd boy could be chosen as king, but in fact, being a shepherd is what God would call his king to do, even when he sat on a throne instead of in a field. You see, throughout the Old Testament, after this point, the, the idea and the imagery of a shepherd king is given to us time and time again. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, God is rebuking the leaders of Israel. He says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You're failing as leaders because all you're thinking about is your personal gain, is what the Lord is saying. Ultimately, the choosing of David as the king and the rebuking of all these leaders of Israel who were false shepherds. Do you know what that's pointing to? It's pointing to the true shepherd king, Jesus. It always points back to Jesus. He is the king that Israel truly needs. He is the king that we need. Jesus will tend to His flock. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, that when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion over them. It was as if they were sheep without a shepherd. And so He goes and He serves them and He loves on them. And Jesus proves that He is the ultimate Good Shepherd King because He lays down His life for them. He laid down His life for us. As we stand, I want to draw your attention to Jesus' words. It says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus, He is not a harsh King. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not reactionary. Like when you poke Him, anger doesn't come out. Jesus, in fact, is the most understanding person in the universe. So many of us, are afraid of God because we have this view that God is up there in the heavens just waiting to point mistakes out in our lives. That He's out there just pointing at them and, and reminding us and ready to set us to hell. Somewhere on that spectrum, we thought that about God. But that's not how Jesus comes to us. That's not how He reveals Himself to us. You see, that's a lie, that thought about God, that He would be this angry authoritarian man up in the heavens. Because He says He is gentle and humble. And that means that the posture that's most natural to Him is not this, it's welcome, it's come. It's open arms, come, you are welcome. 
This place is for you. This family is for you. Jesus is a King who is humble at heart, which means He is accessible. He is the most approachable man in history. Even lepers got up close and personal with Jesus. And in order for you to be embraced by Him, you simply need to open yourself up to it. You simply need to say, I'm willing, Lord. I want to come. You simply need to respond to His invitation and come. You see, if you make Jesus your Lord, His rule over you will not be oppressive. He's not going to bash the Ten Commandments over you. That's, that's sometimes the picture that we get, isn't it, about God's rule. But He is a gentle King. He is a humble King. He deals with us gently. And when you follow Him, you will find healing and you will find rest for your souls. So we must choose. Because if our hearts are not in allegiance to, to God, it's in allegiance to something else. Whether it's ourselves, our career, material possessions, something else. But Jesus says, come. Now I believe God is inviting some of you here. We think we know the king we need. And, but the thing is, we tend to choose things like soul things that we're impressed by but here God is giving you a king that you need and he is gentle and lowly and he says come to me and so in this moment I'm going to ask if any of you have been finding it hard to trust God finding it hard to follow Jesus and maybe it's because you've been hurt in the past especially by somebody who was supposed to protect you. If you've been hurt, especially by somebody who was given the responsibility to care for you. And that could be something, either abuse or neglect, just abandonment, disappointment. But you wanna ask God to heal your heart and you want to respond to His invitation to rule over your heart as gently and humbly as He will. Would you pat your hand on your heart? And I will pray for you. I see your hands. Yeah, I see your hands. So Lord, in this moment, I know you see those of us, God, who are asking you to heal us. Lord, let your healing power come and flow. Grace like a river flow in us, God. Let it mend the wounds, Lord, that have been caused by leaders in the past, people who have hurt us in the past, have dealt harshly with us in the past. Lord, I ask that you're, you would heal us and that you would give us the grace to not hold on to the offense, but to release forgiveness. 
just the way you have forgiven us, God. Let it overflow in our hearts, God, so that we know, Lord, it is your love that will carry us, God, into the next chapter with you. Help us, God, to trust in you. I ask that you would remove any false images of who you are in Jesus' name. Any images that have not come from you, that have made us afraid of you, that have made us scared of coming to you, God. I ask you remove it in Jesus' name. And Lord, that you would replace it with your truth, with your light, with your love, so we can freely walk in your presence with fullness of joy. I ask that you would lift any burdens also in this place, God, of anybody who may be carrying a false identity, that you would lift it up, God, in, in your presence so we can be released knowing that you see us as we are and you love us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.